Hi, I'm Philip Anthony L. Telly, and this is The Weekend's Out, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 125, Say It Ain't So, Sorbo. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekendout. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And if you do take me up on that offer, please make sure cookies are enabled so I can get my sweet, sweet greenbacks from Amazon. Uh, I believe Amazon owns Audible. Okay. Friends, Romans, weakened doubtites, uh, say it ain't so Sorbo. What the hell am I talking about? Well, Kevin Sorbo is an actor of sorts, perhaps best known for starring in the 1990s TV series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Actually, up until recently, I had, I had a pretty positive view of Kevin Sorbo. Watching shows like Hercules and Xena used to be one of my guilty pleasures. On the one hand, as a lover of mythology and ancient history, I was offended by the bastardization of ancient Greek history and culture. I know the show is dealing with mythology and fantasy, but still it would have been nice if the show was set in a more authentic version of ancient Greece instead of having Hercules and company strutting around in tight leather pants fighting enemies who looked like rejects from a post-apocalyptic Mad Max movie. Not to mention when they eventually completely bent history over the proverbial sawhorse and began adding disparate characters into the mix like Julius Caesar and the mythical Christian archangel Michael with little to no concern for proper historical chronology. Despite all of this, the shows were still fun to watch, and I must admit, I was captivated by the eye candy. I used to have a crush on Xena and Callisto, and now that I think about it, Discord, too. She was like an ancient Greek goth chick. Uh, I apologize for that awkward admission. Um, but maybe uh, I was naive, because Sorbo's Hercules was such a positive figure, and since he came across, superficially at least, as such a nice guy, I figured he probably was a nice guy. Turns out he's a pretty hardcore conservative Christian. Nothing wrong with that in a sense. People are free to believe whatever they want. But he's recently made a slew of ugly public statements, and after I get done talking about his recent controversial comments, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about a Christian film he recently starred in entitled God's Not Dead, probably a uh, play on the Nietzsche quote, God is Dead, and famously, uh, I forget, is it in the song Heresy? Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails fame sings, God is Dead, and no one cares, and if there is a hell, I'll see you there. <laughs> Obviously, Nine Inch Nails fan. Okay. But anyway, uh, one thing I noticed that's kind of ironic about some of Sorbo's recent comments, he repeatedly seems to angrily bash atheists for being angry. Uh, but you'll probably see what I mean in a bit. First up, I'll tackle his comments about the Ferguson riots. If you're not familiar, maybe you've been living in a cave, but the shooting of an unarmed black uh, teenager in Ferguson, Missouri, um, I think, when was that? That was back in August, I think. But it spurred a series of ongoing um, protests. And Kevin Sorbo chimed in, and he says some rather ugly stuff. And this is uh, a story from Salon, and it's dated Thursday, August 21st. Kevin Sorbo's insane racist Ferguson rant calls protesters losers and animals. 
Kevin Sorbo has a few thoughts on Ferguson, and they are very, very, very bad. And this is the uh, author speaking, but I concur. I guess that's how a B-list actor manages to stay relevant these days. The former Hercules star has penned a truly insane, horrible, racist rant on Facebook, calling the protesters in Ferguson losers and animals. Ferguson, a predominantly black community, is just one of the many that has experienced racial profiling by police who see black kids as thugs, and old Herc apparently agrees with that sort of profiling. And these are Kevin Sorbo's words, just to make sure you know they're not mine, okay? Ferguson riots have little to do with the shooting of the young man. It is an excuse to be the losers these animals truly are. It is a tipping point to frustration built up over years of not trying but blaming everyone else, the man, for their failures. It's always someone else's fault when you give up. Hopefully this is a reminder to the African Americans, I always thought we were just Americans, oh well, that their president they voted in has only made things worse for them, not better. He goes on to quote an article by Alicia Collin, uh, in the right-wing publication Jewish World Review, in which Colin or Colin writes, victim-blaming things like, those with open minds would question why the mothers of these so-called martyrs, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, are hogging the media airwaves when they were not even around their grown children's lives at the time of their deaths. It's really terrible stuff, and I'm sorry that you had to read any of this. Well, first off, Obviously, the most incendiary thing about his comments is, is the kind of loaded name-calling. Uh, animals and losers. And maybe he didn't mean it this way. In fact, he did one of those kind of half-assed apologies after the fact, uh, saying maybe he worded things wrong or whatever. But there's a long history of racism in this country, uh, a long history of tension between uh, whites and blacks, of course, because of the legacy of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, the uh, fight for civil rights, etc. Um, and there's some language that's considered loaded. And, you know, there's these ugly racial stereotypes about African-Americans being subhuman. And it's not just African-Americans. Many minority groups or uh, ethnic groups have been targeted in a, in a way or painted in an, in an ugly way that's meant to make them seem uh, subhuman or less than human. It happened to Jews. You know, we see those really grotesque uh, parodies in Nazi propaganda posters. Uh, it happened to the Irish right here in America. Irish need not apply. Um, caricatures of Irish people that made them look uh, more monkey than human. So I don't know whether whether he meant it or not or how deeply those sentiments run in him, but using the word animals, definitely not the, uh, the best choice. And also he uses the word uh, losers, and um, I don't know if I'm the only one, and I don't mean to try and make myself seem nicer than I really am or something, but I have a pet peeve concerning certain words, and loser is one of them. I, I think loser is a word that people use when they really want to kind of pigeonhole or dehumanize another person. Instead of looking at a person as a whole and trying to take into consideration both the good and the bad, uh, embodied in that individual. It's like they try to write the person off 
as garbage or being worthless. You're a loser. So I always thought that um, that's a rather mean word. And it might sound kind of ironic and hypocritical since when I'm hanging out with my friends, I kind of talk like a truck driver. You know? uh, it's very hard to uh, offend me as far as swears and things like that are concerned. But I think um, in a way there's more venom or intentional malice in the word loser than there is in the F word, you know? So, and then another thing in there that shows a kind of, if not racial insensitivity, just kind of ignorance. He talks about frustration built up over years of not trying, blaming, blaming everyone else, quote unquote, the man for their failures. And maybe there's a little bit of truth in that, that at the end of the day, no matter how bad our surroundings are, our circumstances are, um, at the end of the day, no matter how much others may deserve some of the blame for how we've turned out, if you want your life to change for the better, you have to eventually try to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and try to move forward instead of blaming people. So maybe there's a little grain of truth, but it shows a kind of ignorance or insensitivity too, because I, I think the main reason why African-Americans tend to come from impoverished, crime-ridden um, areas that lack opportunity is because there's this kind of echoing effect from the legacy of slavery. You had a group that was literally enslaved and treated like cattle or chattel. Um, and even when they got their freedom, they weren't treated like full human beings. And uh, they had a long, arduous fight to try to gain basic civil rights. And so you had, so even after they were free from slavery, you had a group that was still kind of uh, ostracized and marginalized. So of course, they're going to end up in environments where they have less opportunity, whether it be for upward mobility, for uh, a chance at education, etc. And even though I was just talking about picking yourself up by your bootstraps, I'm also very sensitive to the idea that that we're all shaped by both nature and nurture, and we're conditioned by our our environment, by our social experiences, by our families. Uh, but like I said, at the end of the day, if you want to succeed, hopefully you can find it in a strength to try to raise yourself up, but it can be tough. So if you come from an inner city environment that's impoverished, um, where the quality of education is low, um, you come from a family that's been struggling for generations. It's not always easy to, uh, quote unquote, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. So I just think it shows a lack of basic human decency or sensitivity for him to not only call the protesters animals and losers, but to just speak very glibly about how they're to blame for their lot and uh, they're not trying hard enough or something like that. But moving on, here's another uh, news story concerning some controversial uh, statements by the former Hercules star. And this is from Salon 2 and this one's dated August 27th. Kevin Sorbo lashes out at atheists. The Hercules actor says non-believers are filled with anger and hatred because they secretly believe in God. And uh, this article is by Sarah Gray. 
Kevin Sorbo, former Hercules star, unleashed yet another ignorant screed, this time aimed at atheists. Raw Story reports that on Tuesday, Sorbo appeared on the Christian radio host Rick Wiles' show to promote his new film, God Is Not Dead. On air, the actor also discussed why atheists are so angry. And I should pause for a minute to say that I think Rick Wiles might be the, the pastor um, slash radio host that I did a story about recently and he was talking about wanting mandatory jail time and hard labor for homosexuals just to put things into some context here but now I'll continue with the article the atheists are such a small group of people and this is Sorbo I believe and they get on Fox or CNN and they rant and they rave Sorbo told Wiles and I pretty much base my character in God is not dead off of these guys that I see who are just angry. They're just filled with anger and hatred. On the one hand, I feel sorry for them, but then I kind of laugh at them, Sorbo explained. Why would anybody spend so much time ranting and raving about something they don't believe in? What is more ridiculous than Sorbo's above question? Sorbo's inane answer to his own question. I know these guys must believe in something, otherwise they wouldn't get so angry about it. And they don't like the fact that there's a higher power out there that is judging how they live their life. Atheists must secretly believe in something, therefore they're just angry that God is judging them. Well, that's just so presumptuous and ignorant. And it shows a lack of um, any type of intimate knowledge of how most non-believers, most atheists and agnostics, at least the ones I know, how they really think. And I often talk about my own harrowing journey to becoming a non-believer. And I talk about how when I was a kid, there was nothing more horrific to me than the idea that there may not be a God or an afterlife. And I used to watch things like documentaries on the Shroud of Turin or the Holy Grail or the Spare of Destiny or on, um, you know, miracle stories or just uh, documentaries on the resurrection and things like that. And I used to keep my fingers crossed that by the time the documentary ended, they would prove that those things were real or whatever. And of course, a believer might say you shouldn't need evidence to believe, blah, blah. But <laughs> despite how terrified I was at the proposition that there might not be a God or an afterlife, the voice of reason in me told me that the most important thing, the most noble thing, was to pursue the truth, not pursue what might make you feel better or safer or placate you, but to go after the actual truth, to not settle for some man-made belief system that's been passed down to you, to settle for a bunch of supernatural claims that can't be proven just because they make you feel better. I wanted to know the truth. And um, it was very painful and harrowing. And I went through a lot of kind of dark nights of the soul. But I eventually came to the point where I was able to make peace with the idea of my own mortality, make peace with the idea that life might be transient and that's it and, and still somehow find beauty and meaning in life. And I don't consider myself angry at all. Uh, I feel like maybe I'm someone who's been through a lot in life other than um, you know, the kind of struggle I, I just related in that anecdote uh, about my own kind of uh, journey to becoming a non-believer. But 
in other ways, too, I'm someone who's wrestled with things like depression, anxiety. Um, I maybe don't come from the most stable of uh, family backgrounds or whatever. Um, but I feel like I was able to go through those kind of dark nights of the soul and uh, metaphorically speaking, and eventually make it to the light at the end of the tunnel. And to me, that light isn't God. That light is just being grateful that I made it through in one piece. And uh, even in my darkest moments, I've still been able to maintain a kind of nonsensical and irreverent sense of humor. Um, so I'm someone that likes to joke a lot, that um, likes to find joy in the absurd. You know, someone that uh, likes to take joy just in existing. Um, and I think there's a lot of other non-believers like that too. You know, there's the stereotype about the kind of bitter, smug non-believer who uh, has this worldview devoid of any uh, magic or love for life or whatever. Um, and I use the word magic figuratively, but even someone like Richard Dawkins one of the really big-name atheists, uh, one of the quote-unquote new atheists. Richard Dawkins is a scientist by profession. Uh, specifically, he's an evolutionary biologist. And although I think Richard Dawkins can sometimes come off as kind of cold, perhaps, um, if you read his works and if you watch a lot of interviews with him, if you watch his documentaries... You can tell he actually does have, have a very life-affirming perspective. You can tell he's someone with this real love of the natural world, a love of studying and investigating the natural world, someone with a, a love for nature and animals, um, dare I say a love uh, for the mystery of it all, um, even though, like myself, he doesn't believe in a creator or an afterlife, or at least doubts the existence of those things, I think the universe, the natural world, those things fill him with a sense of kind of intoxicating awe. And I think um, many scientifically-minded non-believers are like that. Oh, and then if you think about things like um, one of the funniest men on the planet, Ricky Gervais, atheist. Uh, Tim, uh, is it Minchin? Uh, atheist, I believe. So this idea that atheists are are bitter and angry, I'm sure there probably are some bitter and angry atheists out there. Um, sometimes recent quote-unquote converts, maybe young college-age kids who are first discovering their non-belief. Sometimes uh, when people are young and idealistic, they can kind of be overly... Uh, zealous in, in their approach and uh, they can come across abrasive or too quick to try to push their worldview on others or something like that. But just as easily there can be bitter Christians or bitter religious people too. We have Muslims uh, on the other side of the world cutting people's heads off. Um, we have Christians who hang outside of uh, funerals and hold up signs that say God hates fags, or thank God for dead soldiers. So um, people on both sides of the uh, fence um, can be uh, bitter or angry. But it's funny, as I said later on, I'll talk about that movie Sorbo was in, and he plays the stereotypical 
angry atheist. And uh, that movie was a trip, man. I actually made myself watch it over the weekend just so um, I could kind of tie my opinions on it into um, this discussion of uh, Sorbo that we're having right now. All right, so now I have an audio clip of Sorbo kind of flirting with anti-Semitism, to put it nicely, I suppose. And I got this clip from the Young Turks, and I'll play it now. Number yeah. one, I think maybe next time when they want to do a, 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 you know, a character in the Bible, hire at least an agnostic, not an atheist, <laughs> director. <laughs> you know? I mean, the director is self-proclaimed atheist. And it's yeah. like, okay, let's hire this guy. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't get it. I don't understand the, you know, I, I sort of understand why they never want to deal with the uh, the New Testament in, in Hollywood because it's pretty much you know run by the by the world of the um, of the Jewish population. <laughs> right, right. The world of the Jewish population. So there's that old stereotype that the Jews uh, run Hollywood. Um, are there some powerful Jewish people in Hollywood now? Uh, probably. Um, were some of the movie moguls of the past. Uh, and also some of the directors, etc., uh, Jewish? Uh, probably, I think so. Is there some kind of Jewish conspiracy to keep Christians from making movies? Uh, I severely doubt it. There's been many, many movies made about the life of Christ, going all the way back to the silent film era. And there's also plenty of powerful people in Hollywood whether they be talent like actors, um, directors, uh, financiers, who happen to not be Jewish. And I think like any other area in a capitalistic system, if it makes money, people will do it. If people had a bigger hunger for religious movies than they did for uh, action movies, we'd probably see more religious movies. But even so, like I said, there's been many movies made about uh, the life of Christ. I think just recently, um, was it the couple who made the Bible miniseries, um, Roma Downey and her husband, uh, they also recently made a movie about Jesus that went uh, nationwide, perhaps worldwide. Uh, actually, probably, yeah, worldwide, because I think there may have been some controversy because in the Islamic world, not only are you not supposed to depict the Prophet Muhammad, but I think um, there's often a prohibition, too, against showing uh, the faces of prophets in general. So they didn't like the fact that Jesus was being shown in the movie. Um, or that he was depicted in the movie. Yeah, I believe the name of that Roma Downey Mark Burnett movie is Son of God. And I think it was actually made of, uh, in part, of kind of leftovers, uh, that's probably not a nice way to put it, from the uh, Bible miniseries, partially made of uh, outtakes or something like that. But, so I, I did a search for movies about Jesus, and it's kind of funny on, on Wikipedia, uh, one of the first mo movies that popped out at me was Dracula 2000. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember, was Jesus in Dracula 2000? Maybe he was. Uh, if I remember the movie correctly, I think in that movie, this is pretty far out, uh, G um, Dracula, rather, was actually uh, Judas Iscariot. And I think it was kind of part of his punishment. He became uh, 
undead or whatever. And one thing I'll say about that movie, though, is kick-ass soundtrack. Uh, I think Power Man, 5000, um, Slayer, uh, System of a Down, a bunch of uh, kind of cool metal bands. But anyway, yeah. so I went right to Wikipedia to look up movies, uh, if not about Jesus, uh, that have to do with the New Testament. Because I think the point uh, that Sorbo was making in his kind of anti-Semitic way is that Jews are willing to make movies about the Old Testament because that's their book, but not the New Testament. And uh, here we are, 1912, uh, From the Manger to the Cross, The Miracle. 1927, we have The King of Kings, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, yeah, it's Christian in a roundabout way, I guess. She, um, she believes she was uh, commanded by God, and she was burnt at the stake, so I guess you could consider her a martyr. Let's see, what else do we have? Did I already say The King of Kings? That was in 1927. Boys Town. That sounds like it could be a gay adult film, but I think it was actually uh, a movie about a priest. Ah, that was inappropriate. Uh, 1941, we have The Blood of Jesus. 1942, Brother Martin, Servant of Jesus. The Song of Bernadette. 1945, Rome, Open City. Uh, the Bells of St. Mary. Monsieur Vincent. Uh, the Miracle of the Bells. Joan of Arc. Come to the Stable. The Flowers of St. Francis, Diary of a Country Priest, The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima in 1952, Martin Luther, The Robe, that's another big one, um, The Miracle of Marcelino, 1957, St. Joan, man, they made a lot of Joan movies, um, The Nun Story, and of course, Ben-Hur, big one, 1959, 1961, there was a film called Hoodlum Priest, Francis of Assisi, King of Kings, again, in 1961. Barabbas, uh, 1961. Barabbas is supposedly the um, the criminal who was uh, let go in Jesus' stead. Um, Lilies of the Field, The Cardinal, Gospel According to St. Matthew, The Greatest Story Ever Told, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, Jesus of Nazareth in 1977, uh, The Nativity, the Nativity and Born Again in 1978, 1979, Jesus, uh, Christmas Lilies of the Field, on and on. I'm not going to read all these, man. But uh, anyway, and those are mostly just movies that have to do with Jesus or the New Testament. I didn't include the Old Testament ones. So Sorbo is talking out his ass, to put it crudely. It sounds like um, at the beginning of that clip, I think he's referring to Aronofsky's Noah. Remember recently, uh, Aronofsky, who's made some really kind of gritty and controversial movies in the past, like uh, Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream, probably one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, but also one of the most disturbing and depressing movies I've ever seen. But he made a movie about Noah, and it sounded like Sorbo condescendingly was saying, um, at least get in agnostic for a director, not an admitted atheist or something like that. And I remember reading interviews with Aronofsky, and supposedly this was like a passion project of his. Um, he's Jewish, and from a young age, he was fascinated by the story 
of Noah and the Flood. And for a long time, he wanted to make a movie about it. So it's not like they just picked some director at random. This was a passion project of his, as I understand it. And I actually just watched Noah this past week. And um, it was kind of bizarre, you know, because you have this kind of uh, edgy, eccentric filmmaker telling the Noah story in his own way. And I, I think conservatives had complained that the movie kind of beats you over the head with this kind of environmentalist uh, green agenda or something like that. And there is a little bit of that, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. You know, if the message they're sending is people should take care of the earth and take care of the animals, uh, what the hell is wrong with that, you know? Um, and then I think there was one other part that conservatives didn't like, that uh, during the middle of the movie, perhaps... Um, Russell Crowe plays Noah is telling his children the story of Genesis, the story of creation. And he says it, uh, I, I think, I don't know if he reworded it or if it's verbatim from the Bible, but he's telling the traditional story of creation. And they show this sequence of everything coming into existence and animals coming to existence. But they kind of show the animals moving at quick pace and it looks like the animals are, are evolving. Um, so I think conservatives may have had an issue with that too, that was pro-evolution. But hey, supposedly even um, creationists or people who believe in intelligent design believe in evolution. They just believe that God sparked it or whatever, right? Or at least certain types of creationists. Definitely, Intelligent design means you believe in uh evolution but you think god uh kind of kick-started the whole thing or whatever but all in all i mean especially i don't know if aronofsky's an atheist he, he probably is i think he's at least you know really secular um even though like i said he had a jewish upbringing he's fascinated with the noah story but it was a very pro-god movie i mean Morally, I've talked about how I find the whole story of the flood morally offensive, where, um, you know, God decides that man has become too corrupt. So what's he do? He basically uh, drowns and kills um, the majority of creation or whatever. Um, and I'll rein myself in. I won't go off on a whole tangent about uh, the Mesopotamian precedent for the Noah story, how we have the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um it kind of looks like uh, the Noah story is just another example of where where the Bible borrows from earlier polytheistic Mesopotamian uh, religion. But I would actually say that Aronofsky goes out of his way to make God look like the good guy. He makes people look as corrupt and horrible as he can, with the exception of Noah's family. So you really don't feel bad when God floods the earth, you know? Um and in the movie, there's no doubt about God's existence. God definitely exists. Um, and Noah, the protagonist, um, you know, he's depicted as the good guy who unquestioningly uh, fulfills God's will. So I, I thought it really was this very pro-God movie. It was fun and entertaining. Um, but I, I don't know why um, Sorbo and... Rick Wiles or whatever were griping about the Noah movie. And I think Ken Ham had a problem with the Noah movie too because of his own 
batshit crazy ideas, young young earth creationist ideas about how the animals fit on the ark. He tries to make an excuse instead of two of every single uh, animal. It was actually only two of each kind of animal. So it wasn't two of every kind of dog. It was just two dogs. Uh, it wasn't two of every lizard. It was just two lizards. And still, I still don't know how he'd fit all the animals on the ark. Uh, but so I think um, Ken Ham had a problem that it, it showed two of every kind of animal on the ark or whatever. And uh, he said, oh, no, according to my crazy ass uh, young earth creationist point of view, it's actually two of every quote unquote kind. Um, and that's how, like I said, how young earth creationists try to spin the flood story to try and make it more likely that all those animals could have been fit on the ark or whatever. And there's something else I wanted to say, but I forgot. It doesn't pertain to that clip I just played, but to an article I read before that where Kevin Sorbo was talking about why do atheists rant and rave about something that they don't believe in? Uh, they must really believe, but they're afraid that God is judging them or whatever. Um, I had someone say something similar uh, in response to one of the episodes. Um, the great majority of the feedback I've gotten to this podcast since its inception has been positive. But I did do one episode that had to do with Dr. Eben Alexander, the Harvard neurosurgeon who claimed to have a near-death experience. And I thought in a fairly respectful way, I just kind of wax philosophical why we can't take his anecdote as empirical evidence for an afterlife. And I went on about why I didn't believe in near-death experiences. And someone replied on YouTube saying something like, for someone who doesn't believe in God, you sure like to talk about him a lot. And I think I talked about this in my interview with uh, Alexander Nye, too. And to me, it's like obvious, of course, whether you believe in God or not, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, how did we get here? Is or isn't there a God? Is or isn't there an afterlife? These are huge questions that people have thought about since they were able to reflect upon such things. And uh, a lot of us who are non-believers also still kind of have a love affair with religion or the study of religion, the study of ancient history. I'm often very critical of religion, and I like to point out religious hypocrisy, um, and I like to kind of debunk the supernatural claims made by uh, certain religions. But I still love the study of religion. I still love watching religious documentaries. And I still like wrestling with the big questions. Um, and I think those are things, whether you believe or not, that you should give some thought to, that you should reflect upon. And religious people don't have a monopoly on religion. I might not be a believer now, but I was born and raised Catholic. Uh, Catholicism uh, helped shape who I am. Uh, I almost feel, in a weird sense, figuratively speaking, that's in my blood, you know what I mean? Um, I come from a predominantly Italian uh, family, a long history of Roman Catholicism. So uh, every human being has a right to contemplate the existence of God, to contemplate religious matters. No one has a monopoly on that. So I think it's such a shortcut to thinking for people to say, um, you sure like to talk about things you don't believe in. Well, it's like a lot of skeptics like to talk about Bigfoot and UFOs too. Um, 
they might not believe in those things, but they're still fun and fascinating and thought-provoking to think about, you know? But anyway, I think I have another uh, Kevin Sorbo article that also has to uh, do with some anti-Semitic comments. Oh, here we go, yeah. Oh, and I forget which one, um, which uh, online magazine or publication this comes from, but it's by William Rameau. And it's uh, entitled, Hercules actor Kevin Sorbo explains Jews killed Jesus remark while promoting new Christian movie. Just keeps getting worse, man. Um, okay. God's Not Dead star Kevin Sorbo recently addressed the controversy surrounding his comments regarding the death of Jesus Christ depicted in the Bible. Here's the deal. Here's reality. The Jewish leaders offered Jesus up to Pilate, preferring to free a hardened criminal, said Sorbo to the blaze. And here's another quotation. Did all Jews at the time hate Jesus? Of course they did not. The people screamed to let the hardened criminal go. That's in the book. That's in the facts. After all, Jesus was Jewish. The Jewish leaders and a handful of Jews gave him up. It was more like they were accomplices to his murder. They knew he was going to be murdered. There was no question. The 55-year-old Minnesota native previously made the following comments when he came in defense of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie after some people claimed the Christian film was anti-Semitic. Oh, he, Gibson got attacked when he was shooting the Passion from the Jewish community, saying, look at the way you're portraying us, said Sorbo on the Vocal Point radio show on September 8th. I mean, I go, okay, News Bolden, you did kill Jesus. They did deliver him, so they had a hand in it. The Christian actor now clarifies that his message was misinterpreted by critics when he did the aforementioned interview with radio host Jerry Newcomb. I should have worded it better. We live in such an age where everything is scrutinized, said Sorbo. Liberals love to project a false image on the wall and get very upset with the image they've created themselves. Sorbo will star as French theologian John Calvin in his next upcoming title, uh, Let the Lion Roar, which is slated to be released on September 19th, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, I would say the first problem with that story, other than it makes him sound uh, at least moderately anti-Semitic, is that I think mainstream scholars take issue to some extent with the New Testament's portrayal of the trial and execution of Jesus. And I think uh, I've heard numerous biblical scholars say that the idea that Pontius Pilate left whether or not Jesus should be released up to the crowd, or the idea that there was some Passover custom or Jewish tradition that said one prisoner should be shown clemency or allowed to go free was probably some kind of literary device to move the story forward and that it didn't actually happen. Let me read this bit from... Wikipedia. According to the four canonical gospels and the non-canonical gospel of Peter, there was a prevailing Passover custom in Jerusalem that allowed or required Pilate, the prefectus or governor of Judea, to commute one prisoner's death sentence by popular acclaim, and the crowd, Oclos, the Jews, and the multitude, in some sources, were offered a choice of whether to have either Barabbas or Jesus released from Roman custody. According to the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
and the accounts in John and the Gospel of Peter, the crowd chose Barabbas to be released and Jesus of Nazareth to be crucified. Pilate is portrayed as reluctantly yielding to the insistence of the crowd. A passage found only in the Gospel of Matthew has the crowd saying, Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And that's my first time hearing Prefectus uh, referring to Pilate. I think I usually just hear him referred to as governor or prefect. Um, but it's probably just a fancy word for the same thing. Yeah, but so I've heard uh, mainstream biblical scholars state that there doesn't seem to be any evidence for this tradition mentioned in the Gospels about um, letting one prisoner go. And as I said, they um, suggest that it could just be a kind of literary device. But let's say even if the um, judgment and execution did happen as it's described in the Bible, so all Jews are to blame for Jesus' death, and, and uh, Sorbo kind of says, at one point, to his credit, that you know he admits Jesus was Jewish. Not all Jews uh, hated Jesus, but he does mention them as accomplices. And uh, you know, as other people um, have mentioned before, and it sounds kind of silly, but when you think about it, it's a good point. Um, you know, Jesus was hung on a Roman cross or na- nailed to a Roman cross, pierced by a Roman spear, supposedly. Um, beaten and whipped by Roman soldiers, condemned by a Roman governor. And as hi- history tells us about the real Pilate, he was actually recalled to Rome, I think, in part because of his harsh treatment of the Jews. So it's not like he was Mr. Nice Guy. So he was condemned, uh, Jesus was condemned by a Roman governor. How come no one blames the Italians? The, the Romans were basically ancient Italians. I'm mostly Italian. No, people blame the Jews, even though uh, Jesus was Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, the uh, crowds he preached to were Jewish, um, three out of the four gospel writers were Jewish, Paul, the champion of the New Testament, you know, Paul was uh, Jewish. So it's as if people are looking for an excuse to be anti-Semitic and blame the Jews, and that they're being selective in their choice of who to blame. And they, they like to overlook Jesus's Jewishness, the Jewishness of Paul, of the, uh, of the apostles, of, uh, as I said, three of the four gospel writers, the beloved uh, Virgin Mary, Jewish, you know, so um, it is true that sometimes uh, it, it seems like the Bible progressively speaks more and more harshly towards the Jews. But as I've heard biblical scholars and theologians talk about it, it shouldn't be taken as anti-Semitic as we think about it. It's more like an inter-family squabble. The um, first Christians were very aware of their Jewishness, and there was a big battle within the early church, uh, not physically, but over whether or not um, converts to what we now call Christianity should have to be circumcised and follow Jewish dietary laws. The first Christians were Jewish. Um, And and as I said, once again, three out of the four gospel writers were Jewish. So even when the Bible speaks harshly about Jews, it's more Jews being critical of other Jews than anything. It shouldn't be taken as an excuse for anti-Semitism. All right. I think I got my point across. Now I think uh, Sorbo made... One more dumbass comment. Uh, this time it was about 
Well, actually, this is pure politics. This isn't even religion. But he was trying to make a connection between the NFL failing to punish Ray Rice and what he saw as the failure to take responsibility for Benghazi in the uh, Obama administration. Uh, so <laughs> I just figured I'd just mention that in passing. And I want to do one quick non-Sorbo story. As distasteful as I now now find Sorbo, I still kind of like his last name because it kind of sounds like Sorbet. And that makes me think of like sherbet and ice cream. And when I was a kid, I used to think sherbet was sherbert, like Qbert. But anyway, um, this one's about Stephen Hawking. And I think it's kind of saying what we probably already knew. Stephen Hawking says there is no God, confirms he's an atheist. Stephen Hawking says he's an atheist, arguing that science offers a more convincing explanation for the origins of the universe and that the miracles of religion aren't compatible with scientific fact. Before we understood science, it was natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation, the celebrated physicist said in a video posted by Spanish newspaper El Mundo. What I meant by we could know the mind of God is we would know everything that God would know if there was a God. But there isn't. I'm an atheist. Hawking's remarks came in response to a question from El Mundo journalist Pablo... Jaraguay, Jaragui, who quizzed Hawking about his religious leanings. In the lead-up to this week's Starmus Festival in the Canary Islands, the Mind of God reference was Hawking's effort to clarify a passage in his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time, in which he wrote that scientists would know the mind of God if a unifying set of scientific principles, known colloquially as the theory of everything, were discovered. As NBC News reported, this isn't the first time Hawking has spoken about his religious has spoken about his religious beliefs. In 2011, he told The Guardian that he didn't believe in a heaven or an afterlife, calling it a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. In 2007, he told the BBC that he was not religious in the normal sense, adding, I believe the universe is governed by the laws of science. The laws may have been decreed by God, but God does not intervene to break the laws. Now that saying there is more in keeping with uh, deism, the idea of a, this kind of divine clockmaker who uh, creates things, sets the laws in motion, but then just steps back out of the picture and lets things unfold. Um, oh, but I remember I promised I'd talk a little bit about that God's Not Dead movie starring uh, Sorbo that I forced myself to watch. I made a list of things I found interesting. First up, there's a character in the movie. Uh, the mother of one of the characters has severe dementia, uh, Alzheimer's. And I remember thinking, th this brought up to me this uh, this problem I I wrestle with that if there's a God, uh, how do you explain something like Alzheimer's? You know, if there's an immortal soul that animates our flesh, uh, this indestructible, eternal essence that is us, uh, you know, our, our thoughts, our feelings, our essence, um, the why is it when the brain becomes damaged, uh, we, you know, our psyche, ourselves becomes uh damaged. Um, when a person with severe Alzheimer's uh, who can no longer even recognize uh, the faces of loved ones, when they die, um, do they get all their quote-unquote marbles back or do they spend all of eternity shuffling around looking for their car keys? But anyway, I thought it was interesting that there was a character with Alzheimer's in there. Um, 
And then, so, Kevin Sorbo plays the most dickish... Well, I'm swearing a lot in this episode. <laughs> I'll have to put an explicit tag on. But the most, like, dickish, the most awful, um, arrogant, abusive professor you could ever imagine. He plays uh, a philosophy professor at a university, and he's vehemently, rabidly uh, atheistic, Um to the point where the first thing he has his students do is in order to pass the first uh, 30% of what will be their grade, uh, he has all the students write down God is dead on a piece of paper. That That's their first assignment. That's all they have to do. And so there's one principled Christian young guy, a student, who refuses to do this. And that leads into the premise of the story, which is a Christian student goes head to head with an atheist professor. And um, if the kid wants to pass the class or if he wants to make up the credit for not writing down uh, God is dead, he has to engage the professor in, in a debate and prove that God is real. And, uh, and I was disappointed in a way that... Um, in almost in a parody, like you might imagine, how would a Christian depict atheists? All the atheists in the movie are absolute jerks. They're narcissists. Um, they're rude. Uh, they're arrogant. Um, just downright mean, you know. And I remember one thing that kind of impressed me is it seems like they tried to flesh out Sorbo's character or, or add some credibility to his character by making him give this little speech about, you know, the philosophers throughout the ages who he admired. And there was this long list of philosophers, etc., on the blackboard. And he even spews out a few um, fairly erudite quotes about uh, philosophy and existentialism, things like that. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, did anyone who make this movie actually stop and read the work of any of these philosophers? Uh, if they did, um, <laughs> they might have had second thoughts. I don't know. Um, so then there's another annoying character who's a non-believer. She's depicted as this kind of far-left liberal journalist. All she cares about is getting a good story and making religious people look stupid. And um, this is really strange. So she thinks it's got to be like her big break. She wants to ambush one of the stars of Duck Dynasty as they're in their way to church. I, I kid you not. And uh, one of the Duck Dynasty stars and his wife have a cameo in the movie. And I don't know if this is before or after those crazy kind of uh, rants and those homophobic comments and comments about marrying underage girls that fill... Um, Robertson or whatever made, I don't know. Yeah, so the Duck Dynasty guy and his wife have a cameo. And then there's a Muslim girl in in the uh, movie. And her father finds out that she's been listening to a Franklin Graham audiobook version of the Bible on her iPod Nano. That's how much of an Apple geek I am. I looked at the, the device and right away I knew it was one of the newest gen uh, iPod Nanos. And so the father literally beats her and kicks her out of the house because she was listening to, um, you know, a Bible on her iPod. Um, granted, that could happen in real life. No doubt. I'm sure uh, women have been beaten and killed for uh, far less. 
um, and uh, Islamic societies. I'm not saying that's all uh, Muslims, of course not. Uh, but, you know, we've heard about honor killings uh, in the Middle East, and unfortunately we've had um, honor killings uh, right here, too. But I, I thought it was kind of a low blow. I mean, if you want to make a pro-God movie, honestly, you're not just making a pro-God movie, it's a pro-Christian movie. You even have to make members of other religions look bad. You know, you, the only Muslim uh, Muslims in the movie are a um, one who's a convert to Christianity and one who beats his daughter. The, you know, and and in fairness, there's a little brother and like a grandfather or something too. But uh, I, I'm like, is that really necessary, man? I mean, it's not enough. You're making a pro-Christian movie. You have to take a shot at uh, Muslims while you're at it. And uh, another place where I'll give the film credit is... Um, it seems like whoever wrote the dialogue must have done their homework and watched like uh, William Lane Craig and um, I forget his first name. Uh, there's a mathematician, a Scottish mathematician and Christian apologist, last name Lennox, his first name uh, slips my mind. I can't believe it. He's one of the big apologists that you can find on YouTube debating atheists and stuff. Uh, John Lennox, I think. Um but it seems like whoever wrote the dialogue must have done their homework and really studied, you know, people like William Lane Craig and John Lennox because uh, they put some pretty good uh, apologist counter arguments in, in the kid's mouth. Um, once one point where I found a real chink in the armor, though, is when the subject of morality comes up and they go into the old canard and, you know, and they act like the atheist professor is really stumped by this one. The kid says of his atheist professor. Um, he claims that there's no absolute morality, but if he caught you cheating on a test, he'd probably punish you and consider it wrong. And he went into, you know, the thing about no morality without God, where did morality come from? They don't even mention the possibility of morals having an evolutionary context or of possibly being a byproduct of the evolutionary process or that morality may evolutionarily be advantageous to social creatures. And that's funny that the kid really, you know, like gives uh, Sorbo a, a rocky punch to the jaw when uh, he brings up the, the thing, you know, oh, if there is no God, um, why do you hate him? How can you hate something that doesn't exist? And he keeps, you know, repeating, why do you hate you? Why do you hate God? You hate God, don't you? And finally Sorbo collapses and breaks and he's like, yes, I hate him, blah, blah, blah. And he's really, he really hates God because when he's 12 years old, God let his mother die or something like that. So once again, just like I was talking about earlier, there's that weird stereotype or distorted idea that atheists don't doubt God's existence. They really believe in God. They just resent him. And I've talked about how as a young person, I think I went through a phase where, uh, where I half jokingly say I resented God for not existing. And obviously there's some cognitive dissonance there, but the fact was I didn't really believe in God and I was mad at him and I was making up reasons to not believe I wanted to believe and I was mad at him for not 
existing. I felt like I was betrayed that I had been uh, indoctrinated into this belief system, told that there's some eternal father, told that Jesus died for my sins, promised an afterlife. And then I came to a conclusion through my own research and reasoning that there's really, I mean, that essentially religions are living mythologies. And we, we can look at most living religions, you know, the Abrahamic faiths, etc., and we can see how their roots go back into polytheism. So yeah, I think I, I was pissed because I wanted to believe, but reason led me elsewhere. So there was this kind of somewhat irrational sense of betrayal by a character that I was mad at because it didn't exist. You know, but it wasn't that I was mad, so I pretended God didn't exist. I was mad at him for not existing in a way, which I think is why when I was, you know, a kid, uh, I, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder and I would kind of irreverently lash out at Christianity. And then there was this really weird thing that the movie tried to sell as like a positive, but to me, it was just like a blatant celebration of superstition and wish thinking like there was this recurring theme where there was this preacher or pastor and it was as if god didn't want him to go on this trip where he was supposed to go with uh, that he was supposed to go on with this uh visiting missionary it was as if god wanted him to stay where he was for some reason so every time the guy would go to start a car it wouldn't start and the all-knowing kind of African missionary guy would, you know, wisely say how it's God and whatnot. And so they kept ordering, like, rent-a-cars. And the rent-a-car guy would pull up. The car would be working fine. The pastor would go uh, turn the key and the car would start. And I'm like, what kind of proof of God is that? Why would you celebrate that kind of weird uh, magical thinking? It was just, it was bizarre. So faith starting cars. And so then, and I thought this was kind of ghoulish in a way. I'm going to ruin the movie for you. What the hell do I care? I'm going <laughs> no spoiler alerts. Hair is the spoiler. I'm always saying this because I know most of you guys are probably interested in what the movie's about, but you don't feel like actually watching it. And if you do plan on watching it out of some masochistic impulse, uh, you probably don't mind me ruining it for you ahead of time. Kevin Sorbo, uh, oh yeah, so Kevin Sorbo has a girlfriend who's a believer. Oh my God. And he just like is a total jerk and belittles and berates her. He's having a dinner party for all his fancy fellow philosophy professor friends. And and the girlfriend keeps coming to the table with trays and meekly waiting on everyone. And they're making fun of her for being religious. Then they make fun of her because the wine tastes awful and she left it in the car too long. Then they're making fun of her because um, she she's unable to understand um, a Greek uh, Socrates quotation. And then so she ends up breaking up with him. And she and all the other Christian characters in the movie all flock to this arena to see a uh, Christian rock band. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And, and I guess some big Christian rock band called the Newsboys or something do a cameo in it. And um, the journalist finds out she has cancer. And so she uh, goes and she gives in and like converts. And the, the Christian rock band like forms a circle around her and prays for her. 
Oh, I should say Dean Cain's in the movie, too. He's the boyfriend of the journalist and the brother of Kevin Sorbo's girlfriend, if that makes sense. And uh, it's their their mother who has the Alzheimer's. And so Dean Cain dumps the journalist because she has cancer. I'm not kidding you. Um, and says that you ruined our, our contract. This isn't how it was supposed to happen. We had fun, but now you have cancer, blah, blah, blah. There is no love, blah, blah, blah. They're both atheists and blah, blah, blah. And so um, Dean Cain goes to visit his mother with dementia, you know, because the sister says, why don't you visit mom anymore or whatever. And all of a sudden, for a second, the mom snaps out of the dementia and she gives an answer to the question he had asked when he thought she couldn't comprehend. And he says, you always prayed and you are so good. Um, and I'm a terrible person and my life is perfect. Why would God allow that? And she says something about the devil, that the devil, something allowing bad people to lead good lives because it keeps them in like a prison of sin. Uh, so they won't turn to Jesus or something like that. And then she goes back into like her dementia. And I'm thinking she doesn't come out of the dementia and say, I love you, son, or there's no touching moment. She just talks about sin and the devil. Uh, like it's kind of cold in a weird way, you know? And uh, all of a sudden, Sorbo reads a letter from his dead mother. And he's ready to believe in Jesus or whatever. So he races to the uh, arena or whatever, to the Christian rock concert where his, uh, where his uh, girlfriend had gone. And on the way, he gets hit by a car, flips up in the air, lands on the ground... And the African missionary and the pastor guy who had all the car trouble just happened to be there. And uh, Kevin Sorbo's character is dying, and it's kind of like a last rites type of thing where they talk him into uh, converting to Christianity or whatever. And he dies. And, and so I'm thinking that's really kind of... It was kind of creepy in a way where um, the way they portrayed like the atheists in the movie, I'm like, one atheist gets cancer the other is redeemed but in order to be redeemed he has to get hit by a car land on the asphalt and uh <laughs> and admit he was wrong or whatever and accept jesus and then the band tells everyone to text the three words god's not dead and then they're outside with dead sorbo and the missionary and the pastor get the message on their phones uh, on their phones, uh, God's not dead, and they kind of smile at each other. This, and they're talking about how this is a night for celebration. I'm the dead Sorbo, man, dead Sorbo. And uh, so, really weird. I thought at least maybe like, I, I was hoping at least, you know, I'm kind of like a sucker for a happy ending. Get your mind out of the gutter. I mean, uh, literar literarily speaking or cinematically, I, I was hoping that even though it wouldn't be an atheistic ending, obviously, it's a Christian movie, I was hoping that Sorbo would go to the arena, get reunited with his girlfriend, apologize, and either they'd make peace with the fact that he was a non-believer and she's a believer, or I was even willing, like, okay, he'll convert, they'll both be Christians, at least they'll be together. But no, he gets struck by a car, goes up in the air. He's dead. She's still inside partying at the uh, concert. And uh, I don't know what happens after that. They don't show it. Does she like walk out and see dead Sorbo on the uh, sidewalk? Post-roadside conversion. 
I have triple A. I don't know if I have roadside conversion though. But uh, what the hell am I talking about? But I think that's it for this week. So once again, um, like the show on Facebook, that would be awesome. I think I lost a Facebook like. I don't even know if you can unlike something on Facebook, but I think someone did. And I'm neurotic like that. So if you want, do me a solid. And the people still say do me a solid. And like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to donate to the show, go to Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Go to the Week in Doubt page there. And there's a PayPal widget that will let you uh, donate hard-earned money to me uh, so I can build a, a church to the god of nothingness. No, actually, I would just use the, the money for uh, paying for like hosting fees and stuff, and I, and I might use it to buy cinnamon bears. Um, and I think you can also contribute to the show on uh, Patreon. You can listen to the show on Stitcher now. I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's it. Thanks for listening.